0: You're listening to The Globalist, first broadcast on the 15th of November 2023 on Monocle Radio. The Globalist, in association with UBS. Hello, this is The Globalist, broadcasting to you live from London. I'm Georgina Godwin. On the show ahead, international pressure for an Israeli ceasefire is building. Yossi Meckelberg will bring us up to date. Xi Jinping arrived in the United States ahead of his face-to-face meeting with Joe Biden. We'll look at what will be on the table. We'll examine the ramifications of a court decision to come today on whether migrants can be deported to Rwanda. Our paper review comes from Paris, and then we have three Davids back-to-back. Back. David Badanus tells us about the threat posed to elections by AI. David Phelan assures us that AI isn't all bad. And David Stevens tells us that sometimes it doesn't even take AI to threaten the democratic process.
1: You should vote. If you go to votethisbirds.com, <laughs> pick the teki. you will be part of what I think is going to be a landslide victory...
0: Sometimes all it takes is a foreign comedian. That's all ahead here on The Globalist, live from London. First, a look at what else is happening in the news. The Israeli Defence Force has entered the Al-Shifa hospital in Gaza City. Spain's opposition has called for EU institutions to stop a highly divisive amnesty law for Catalan separatists. And Emirates has ruled out Airbus A350 purchases until Rolls-Royce resolves issues with its engine. Do stay tuned to Monocle Radio throughout the day for more on those stories. But first, Israel's war against Hamas has entered its 40th day, five weeks after Hamas killed at least 1,200 Israelis and wounded more than 3,300 in a merciless assault. In Gaza, the Hamas-controlled health ministry reports that more than 11,240 Palestinians have been killed. Hamas and Palestinian Islamic Jihad are holding around 240 uh, soldiers and civilians hostage. Well, Yossi Mekelberg, who's a lecturer in international relations at the University of Roehampton, is here with me. Yossi, thank you very much for for coming in. As we've just been hearing in our headlines, the IDF has entered Al-Shifa Hospital and also has control of the Al-Shati refugee camp. I wonder what more you can tell us of events of the last few hours.
2: Good morning. I think this is one of... became almost the Al-Shifa Hospital symbolic of this war. On the other hand, it's obviously entering into hospital, which usually normally goes against international law or humanitarian uh, law. But at the same time, the allegation seems to be quite substantiate now that Hamas, for quite a long time, built, uh, built its headquarters underneath in the bunker there. So this of course,
0: the- they, Hamas denies that.
2: Yeah. Actually, the the United States also says you know that there is some some evidence of this. We'll see. Actually, it's probably a matter of of hours, maybe days, until this one way or another it will be substantiated, whether it is or there is not. But if this is the case, it's because also of a symbol of for Israel. Every war almost needs a victory picture, and I think a ship hospital became one of them. But at the same time, you see this huge suffering caused to. To, to patients there and also thousands of, of civilians that look for shelter in the hospital because there are no many other shelters when you have 700,000 uh, people displaced in different, different places. And at the same time, for Israel, if it can prove that there is a Hamas there this will prove that Hamas is not an organization that you need to deal in in any way. It's through negotiation or diplomacy, but the only way is to defeat it militarily. So I think it's kind of the focus around the Ashifa and some other hospitals, whether they're just hospitals, but also Hamas headquarters. And again, I'm sure it's not an easy battle for any army to enter into such a compound and also to try to avoid uh, civilian casualties at the same time.
0: Mm. Now, Israel's foreign minister, Eli Cohen, says that the country will likely see international pressure to halt or curb its Gaza operation rise significantly within Mm. the next few weeks. But we know that the clamor from citizens, from rights organizations, from NGOs, Mm. and some governments uh, is at screaming point. Uh, I mean, Cohen went on to say the fact that Hamas is still holding some 240 hostages gives the operation international legitimacy how likely do you think it is that the hostages will be returned yeah.
2: I, I think first of all I, I think the Israeli foreign minister I think ignores doesn't read the papers or listening to anything of the international media the pressure is already on mm. they try to kind of get themselves some, some, some time Again, probably listening to the military chief, think we need another two three weeks. But we know in, in wars there is always a mission creep. You say two three weeks, and then it became a month and few months. So this is actually dangerous also for Israel to move into this kind of mission creep. As for, 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 for the hostages, again, for instance, some of the argument is there are hostages in Al-Shifa or the Rantisi hospitals. We all hope to see the hostages released Released. Uh, uh, healthy, but if there is a battles raging within hospitals, it's it's it remain to be to, to be seen what happened. Uh, part of it is negotiation by Qatar and and, and and Egypt and other mediators, but I think this is one of the the major aims of this war to release the 240 uh, hostages. But at the same time, Israel declared also destroying Hamas. One wonder if there is no clash, contradiction between the two aims.
0: Mm. I mean, despite its firm stance backing the no ceasefire Mm. line, Mm. do you think that there have been back-channel meetings with the United States? Is the United States wavering on this?
2: Yeah, there is all the time talks about, you know, you can't... uh, If at the beginning of the war it seems that it's also a blank check, you know, go and fight, do whatever you need. As you see in all, in, in all battles, even if there is asymmetry in military power, you know when you, when you with an organization well 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 equipped as we as we saw determined to fight build tunnel tunnels and bunkers underneath those this is this is tough those are tough fightings at the same time when you have eleven thousand people killed already, many of them or the most of them civilians it can't be open ended it has to come to an end and and as quickly as possible if before the war. Gaza suffered from humanitarian crisis. Now we are talking about a humanitarian disaster, which will rage beyond the war, considering what happens to the health system, what happened to sanitation, access to food and the, and the rest. So there are discussions all the time when it's the time. We see also the change of language. If at the beginning we support Israel, you can go, you go and basically deal with Hamas, there is more concerns. For instance, uh, Prime Minister Tudor in Canada, Macron in, 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 in France, even Biden talking about too many uh, civilian casualties. So there is a build up towards ceasefire. It can't go forever. And just now to see when it's negotiated. There is the other thing. In the past, agreement was negotiated with Hamas and with the leadership of Hamas. Now it has to be unilateral. Who are you negotiated when basically Hamas is in bunkers and Israel declared aim is to kill the entire leadership, Who do you negotiate ceasefire with and who is going to keep it?
0: Mm, mm. Uh, The Arab and Islamic nation response at the summit last weekend, Mm. I thought, was very interesting. I mean, they called, obviously, for an immediate end to the war. But the final communique didn't say that they would sever all diplomatic ties. As you say, Mm. they're very involved in those negotiations. But this doesn't seem to be a united front. It is not
2: a united front. And one of the reasons for that is the way that all of it started. As as you mentioned earlier, the atrocity committed by Hamas it's how you separate, and it's very difficult in a, in a small territory like Gaza, highly populated to separate war in Hamas, which I think the world understands and the, and the region understands after what what Hamas did on seventh of October, but at the same time won't accept that in the, in this war so many civilians uh, pay with their flight, also to look at the at at, at what happens after the war. When there is such high level of killing, those are the very people that Israel will have to coexist peacefully eventually. And what happens now, right now pushes the entire, the entire, the, the entire population, or not, the, or many of them, to the hands of the, of the, of the radicals. Now, I'm not saying there is an easy solution in this kind of situation, but it needs to be thought before the way that the war is conducted.
0: Mm. I mean, the EU's been very strong on this. Joseph Borrell has said that it absolutely must, Gaza must not come under the control of the Israelis after the war. Yeah. But it's hard to see how this is going to work, given that the Arab and Islamic states have said that they want no part in administering it. Well,
2: I, I think that they should reconsider that. I think there must be an international element because the governing body is collapsing. they collapsed already. Hamas is not going and no one will accept the governing of of, of of, of Hamas, not the one from the outside, you not know, the one from the from the inside. Whoever survived that Israeli occupation, after living it 18 years ago, makes no sense. And uh, you know, we have some Israeli politicians talk about building settlements in, in in Gaza, which is which is completely balmy. So, isn't we left to maintain some of the security, but? If it has any sense, any common sense, will withdraw as quickly as possible. Egypt wouldn't like to take it over. It means they're under sixty-seven. So the PA can't enter on the back of Israeli tanks and then to be accused that you see the Israelis actually all the plan all along is for you to go and, and Israel want to facilitate because you are in cohoot with one another. So you need an interim period which you need an international mechanism to govern it, rebuild, reconstruct Gaza building the governing bodies, which eventually will end in, in elections that unite West Bank and Gaza, and hopefully moving in some long-term negotiation on, 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 on permanent settlement before. But it, it looks a bit premature, but actually this is the best time to start in talking about
0: it. Yossi, thank you very much indeed. That was Yossi Meckelberg there, and this is The Globalist. <laughs> It's 23.11 in San Francisco, 7.11 here in London. The Chinese leader Xi Jinping and the US President Joe Biden will meet in San Francisco later today. It's Xi's first visit since 2017 and only the second time the two have met face to face. The bilateral discussion takes place during the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation APEC summit and comes against a background of deteriorating relations. And though the tone in Chinese media has been warmer to Washington of late, many tensions, including over trade, still exist. Well, I'm joined now by Isabel Hilton, who's a China expert and a visiting professor at King's College London. Isabel, thanks for coming back on the show. She and Biden met on the sidelines of the G20 in Bali a year ago, and they both pledged to work more closely together.
3: Why did it fall apart? Well, it was a bit of a chapter of accidents after that. Actually, in fact, the whole story of U.S.-China relations has been a chapter of accidents. I think the major, the major problem was Balloongate, which, uh, which scuppered um, um, Anthony Blinken's um, visit to China, and you know, the the, 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 scan, the, the problem of lack of uh, crisis management uh, facilities. Uh, between them has has really got us to quite a dangerous point. So we've had increasing tensions over Taiwan. We've had uh, the, the fact that China has become a toxic element in US domestic politics and rising Chinese nationalism mean that there's very little wiggle room for either leader. So it really is progress that they're meeting at all. Uh, and what do you think's prompted each side to re-engage? Well, I think the dangers of the world's two superpowers uh, uh, without the kind of safety mechanisms that even the U.S. And, and the USSR had at the height of the Cold War. If you remember, during the balloon scandal, uh, the U.S. military attempted to speak to their counterparts in China and, and they were unable to because the Chinese military simply wouldn't pick up the phone. Now, that means that, you know, in, if something worse were to happen, and it easily could in the Taiwan Straits, uh, then we're into an escalating situation very quickly. And I think that both leaders have recognised that and that perhaps some calming measures, some m- m- low-cost gestures of goodwill will help.
0: Mm. So let's look ahead to what might be on the table. I mean, where do you think that they will find common ground?
3: Well, there's, uh, there were some encouraging noises again from John Kerry uh, about uh, talking to his counterpart, Chez jin Hua, over climate now that's essentially the deal that was done in Glasgow two years ago. But it's, it's I guess encouraging that it's not totally dead. Um, there, there have been leaks. Uh, Bloomberg reported that there was going to be an offer from the Chinese to do something about the precursor chemicals for fentanyl. Fentanyl it is is wreaking havoc in the United States. It's re- it's a synthetic opioid which is easy to make and the. And the chemicals are largely produced in China, shipped to Mexico and then over the border. So uh, certainly the United States has been trying to get China to do something about that. Mm. Um, and we'll see about whether some kind of hotline could be put in over uh, over incidents, uh, you know, unexpected events to stop them escalating into crises. And I'm sure they will be discussing both Ukraine and, uh, and the Middle East, although... China's, uh, China hasn't been exactly speedy to the table on either of those. Mm-hmm. But I think that the U.S. will will be trying to persuade China at least to use its good offices with Russia, which, which it certainly could do uh, to uh, to ameliorate that situation.
0: And what do you think will remain major areas of, of disagreement?
3: Well, I fear that those, those last two won't make much progress, but they will at least be discussing it. Um, and the trade. I think we're unlikely to see very much movement on trade. You know, uh, Biden, uh, if anything, uh, enlarged the field of Trump's uh, trade measures. And certainly in what are called dual-use technologies, so advanced technologies that can uh, be used for military purposes as well as civilian purposes, there's going to be no budging there over the U.S.'s attempt to uh, simply restrict Chinese supply. So I think that, you know, there is a feeling in the United States that the Chinese did not live up to the deal that Trump did, uh, which involved the Chinese buying far more in the way of, of agricultural products and so on. Uh, so I don't see very much room for manoeuvre there.
0: And what about, what about semiconductors and chips? I mean, all of that is still a major bone of contention.
3: <clears throat> That's not going to shift. Um, look, the, the, the United States has said in terms that it wishes to impede China's uh, progress towards uh, the most advanced chips. And, and of course, Taiwan comes into that because the world's most advanced chips are made in Taiwan by a company called TSMC, and the United States is very anxious that China does not get hold of TSMC, but in the meantime, also that China doesn't have the kind of uh, supply chains and, and expertise that would enable it to make... Uh, you know, rapid progress in the most advanced areas, because these, again, you know, these are big areas of contention. If China, for example, made serious progress in quantum computing, that would have major, uh, major impacts on, um, on that would have major impacts on uh, on American security, and the same is true of a number of uh, of areas in which the U.S. sees itself threatened by a Chinese advancement.
0: So, how key do you think this meeting is?
3: Well, I think it's extremely important because you can't have two superpowers who don't talk to each other without the, then uh, developing all sorts of associated stresses. And if you know, if at least these can be contained, or if, and both sides have an interest in not you know the, these these crises getting out of control. Um, So I think that that is important. It's a strong signal, I think, to their domestic audiences that they can meet and talk um, and that, you know, they can meet and talk without giving away key national positions. Um, And that's, that's also important because we're going to have to, given that this rivalry is going to go on for the foreseeable future, what we're looking for is the management of difference and the safe management of difference for the rest of the world. And this is an important step towards that, I think.
0: Mm. Uh, the Chinese media seems all for a rapprochement. The, the tone towards the US appears to have pivoted lately, uh, much to the confusion of readers. What have the papers been saying and, and how's the population reacted?
3: Yeah, well, I think the population is not unused to being told to think something which is completely different from what they were told to think the day before. That's life in China. And uh, and I think you just you, you get used to it. Um, and people will shrug and say, well, you know, there's been a change of policy for the time being or the party is doing this for their, for their own purposes. But it is a sign. I mean, I guess. If nothing, and you, it's a win-win, because if nothing comes out of this meeting, China can tell its people, look, we tried, we went there sincerely, and the perfidious Americans wouldn't uh, wouldn't budge. And if something does come out of the meeting, they can say, you know, we, we, uh, we paved the, the, the ground for uh, tremendous progress, and the Americans fell in behind us. So, you know, if you think of it in Chinese propaganda terms, it makes sense.
0: Isabel, thank you very much indeed. That's Isabel Hilton there. Now, still to come on the programme, electoral subversion comes in many forms.
1: This is what democracy is all about. America
0: interfering in foreign elections. This is The Globalist. Stay tuned.
1: UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today.
2: To find out how we could help you,
1: contact us at ubs.com.
0: Well, let's continue now with today's newspapers. And so joining me from Paris is Agnès Poirier, who's a journalist and author. Good morning to you, Agnès. Good morning. Uh, Now, flying cabs. We were all very excited about getting around Paris during the Olympics next year in the air uh, on these uh,
4: velocopters or whatever they're called. Uh, But that's not going to happen. Well, no, it doesn't bode well for the Volocopter. Actually, Volocopter is the name of the German uh, company manufacturing them. So yes, it was one of those futuristic details that really feed the imagination. And we were promised, you know, flying taxis for the Paris Games next year. But um well, um, I mean, I love the idea, you know, and I think we all did. It it was something uh, coming out of a comic strip, uh, gracing the sky of the French capital during the Olympic Games, There's little... I mean, it, it doesn't look like helicopters. It, it is quite futuristic in design. Um, and, of course, the main argument was to save time for uh, officials, VIPs, athletes, and to beat the traffic. That can be really horrendous in Paris. But a few weeks ago, the French... Environmental authority judged the project with some severity, too noisy, too polluting and potentially dangerous both for passengers but also for Parisians. In other words uh, perhaps still too experimental. And yesterday well the Paris municipality has also rejected the project so it doesn't really bode well. Uh, They refused to authorise the construction of a vertical port on the Seine River. I must say it was really close to the cathedral of Notre Dame which perhaps was uh, too close for comfort. Uh, They also branded the project absurd reserved to a few privileged people of course and uh, consuming far too much energy so the ministry of transport will have the final say in a couple of months but if i were you i would hire i would think about hiring a a good old taxi or better still to use the new olympic cycle lanes to go to the stade de france Uh, and is that the, the main alternative will be cycle lanes or is there any other plan in place no, there are no other plans of, uh, except, of course, for public transports, which I hope will be uh, slightly better and more comfortable uh, by next summer. Um, but then the only new thing is those uh, Olympic cycle lanes. But, you know, we're talking about quite a lot of uh, kilometres, so it will really be for champion visitors, not, not for me, at least. <laughs>
0: uh, let's talk
4: about screens
0: now. You and I are both parents, and we know that that, uh, the electronic babysitter can be an absolute blessing, but actually, it does turn out that it's pretty bad for kids.
4: Well, yes, and we only get, you know, the first scientific uh, um, reviews and, and surveys and, and results on that. And it's interesting that it's uh, a very young uh, and uh, ambitious French education minister in his 30s, uh, Gabriel Etal, who is raising the alarm and asks both parents and teachers uh, and schools to stop using only screens and tablets when educating, uh, educating children. Um, because do, do you remember, I mean, there was this say that today's children are uh, born digital natives, but uh, to paraphrase Simone de Beauvoir, you're not born digital natives, you become digital natives, and only if you're taught uh, first how to use uh, those uh, screens and when not to use them also for your own sake. Because a lot of schools, you know, not only in France but in in Europe and and in the world are introducing tablets and screens in kindergarten. So um, this can have an impact on cognitive skills, and it's interesting that another education minister, this time in Sweden, which is really the champion of all digital uh, tools in in schools, um, are backtracking. Um, Lotta Eldom, who is the education minister in Sweden, uh, is uh, is reintroducing paper, uh, fountain pens, and and hand, uh, handwriting in classrooms because appar- apparently, according to her, twenty percent. Of Swedish pupils never write on paper. They can type on a keyboard, but can't form letters on paper. Imagine that. It is extraordinary, but I mean having grown up, obviously handwriting
0: everything, I find that it's it's a skill that is actually leaving me now too. Are you finding
4: that? We never write things down. I do. <laughs> I do because I love, I love fountain pens and I love, and I'm not talking about, you know, uh, uh, very expensive ones. I love the, even the uh, um, you know, you've got those that you just throw away uh, when the ink is, is, is finished and uh, I love all those different colours of ink and, and just the touch of uh, of the fountain pen on a paper. So um, I'm probably a snob. Yeah. But, um, but no, I couldn't do without, of course, my uh, computer, but also I've got a big, uh, big carnet, a big notepad. And I think it's a, a, you know, it's a a good marriage to have both. But it would be terrible if children didn't know how to write, you know, uh, with a pen and and paper.
0: Absolutely. Now, here is a nugget of news that I think some of us have missed. <laughs> uh, yeah. Tell us about uh, <laughs> the French Prime Minister Elizabeth Bourne and, uh,
4: and Dublin. Well, I was intrigued, you know, because Elizabeth Bourne is uh, a French prime minister and all French prime minister, actually don't travel so much outside of France because they're extremely busy with domestic matters. Uh, and it's it's just down to the uh, the French president, of course, to represent France on an international stage. But uh, Elisabeth Bourne, the French prime minister, and a cohort of French ministers were in Dublin uh, yesterday and the day before. And uh, they discussed, of, of course, European matters, but not only. Uh, the two reasons they were there – Uh, for where electricity and history and uh, there's the ongoing reform of electricity of the electricity market in europe but there's this franco-irish project which i find uh fascinating have you ever heard of the celtic interconnector Absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> it's a five hundred and seventy-five kilometres submarine interconnection, which should actually, in three years' time, connect the region of Cork uh, to Brest in France and link up France and Ireland's electricity networks. Um, so that's good news. And the other. Reason she was there for is history and the anniversary of the 22nd of August 1798 um, land invasion or or happy invasion of French troops um, coming to Ireland to support the Irish Republican Rebellion of Theobald Wolfe Tone and of course against who against the British. Well, you learn something absolutely fascinating every
0: day. Agnes, thank you very much indeed. That is Agnes Poirier there. Now, here's what else we're keeping an eye on today. The Israeli Defence Force has entered the al-Shifa hospital in Gaza City. The US says it has intelligence backing Israel's claim that Hamas has a command centre under al-Shifa. Hamas denies this. The IDF says it's also assumed operational control of the al-Shati refugee camp in Gaza City, considered one of Hamas's main infrastructure centres. Spain's opposition has called for EU institutions to stop a highly divisive amnesty law for Catalan separatists. The draft legislation will end criminal cases against several hundred pro-independence leaders and supporters related to an unlawful bid for Catalonia to break away from Spain in 2017. And Emirates has ruled out Airbus A350 purchases until Rolls-Royce resolves issues with its engines. The airline's president, Sir Tim Clark, said the fuel-efficient engine did not meet the Dubai government-owned carrier's maintenance requirements, adding that Emirates would consider purchasing up to 50 of the aircraft if Rolls-Royce made technical adjustments to allow it to operate better in Dubai's hot, dusty environment. This is The Globalist. Stay tuned. Well, it's been an extraordinary week in British politics after a dramatic reshuffle on Monday saw the surprise return of former Prime Minister David Cameron to the government as Foreign Secretary. Well, today, all eyes are on Britain's Supreme Court, which will deliver its ruling on whether the government can go ahead with its plan to deport asylum seekers to Rwanda, a highly controversial decision which could have far-reaching ramifications for the Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak. I'm joined now by the political reporter, Vincent McAvinney. Vinny, can you just recap what this case is about?
5: Sure. Well, for the past five years, there's been a rapid increase in the number of people trying to cross the English Channel illegally. And we've seen pictures of boats coming from the coast of France. It's gone from just around 3,000 in 2019 to last year, 45,000. Uh, And so the prime minister decided that he wanted to make this a priority this year. They came up with a Rwanda policy in April 2022, which would see some asylum seekers sent to Rwanda to claim asylum there. So that's not just the processing it would be that they would then, if they were granted asylum, live in Rwanda. Uh, that was thought to be a deterrent, uh, but the government have been bogged down in legal fights since then. Now today, Britain's highest court, the Supreme Court, will decide on certain elements of the policy. There are accusations that it has been rushed through and isn't fully thought out. So there might be yet more fighting. If the government loses, they might rework the policy. Uh, if they win, then they might try and go ahead, but there's likely to be a challenge at the European Court of Human Rights. So this really is the most significant court date that Rishi Sunak has had during his time in government on what is one of their flagship policies.
0: Why is it so controversial? Why is Rwanda really coming under scrutiny here as, as a place that perhaps shouldn't be hosting these vulnerable people?
5: Well, I think firstly, from the British side, uh, it looks to some people like Britain is trying to export a perceived problem uh, that they're just trying to dump people uh, who've made their way to this country. Some of them might well have been trafficked uh, and they're just trying to make it someone else's problem. It's also a quite expensive policy. I've been previously uh, been down at an RAF base when there was a last minute legal fight. They had hired a, a huge plane, the kind of plane that you might uh, fly Uh, in when you go on holiday just for sort of six people to be flown to Rwanda uh, and then that was scrapped at the last minute so already it's been costly uh, and no one has ended up in Rwanda but I think part of the problem with Rwanda specifically is that it's been designated as being a safe country for people by the UK Home Office but it is really creating a problem for the UK because If that changed, we all know that Rwanda has a a difficult history when it comes to community cohesion. Uh, If that changed down the line, you could then suddenly get Britain having ongoing problems with what it did to people. You could have people making claims against the country for the treatment uh, of those that are sent to Rwanda. And particularly when you look at the background of many of those who are coming across the channel that Britain is wanting to uh, send there, Many of them are Muslim people, and that could create an issue in Rwanda itself.
0: Mm. Now, of course, the Home Secretary has changed. Suela Breverman, who was the, the person in charge of this policy, has left. She famously said that her dream was to see a plane taking off full of refugees and uh, putting them in, in, in Rwanda. Now, James Cleverly is in charge of the Home Office. Do you think he shares that dream?
5: I'm not sure what his – he supports the position because he has stayed uh, in UK government. There is full cabinet collective responsibility. But he hasn't been as effusive as Suella Bradman, who gave those comments. Now, it's important to say she left, and yesterday she decided to roll the pitch, as it were, uh, to preempt this decision. She has basically laid the blame on what is – kind of expected, although no one actually knows, not even the government knows how this will go. The government are expecting to lose, though. She has put the blame squarely on Rishi Sunak, saying that, uh, you know, with her vast experience as a lawyer, she thought that Sunak hadn't listened to arguments about strengthening laws in Parliament simultaneously, that Rishi Sunak had adopted, quote, wishful thinking to avoid having to make hard choices. It was a really scathing letter all round on on Rishi Sunak and his style of leadership. Uh, And she basically said that I made you leader because I supported you in the race. You're unelected. Uh, but it, on this point about this court case today, she has very much tried to set the framework that it's Rishi Sunak's problem. The sequencing today is that the verdict comes out at 10, it will be broadcast. The Prime Minister then has to go and face PMQs at noon. And then James Cleverly, the UK's new Home Secretary, has to do an urgent question right after PMQs where he's going to have to suddenly defend this policy or change it. Now, Suella Bravman at one point had said that the UK should pull out of the ECHR. Uh, the European Convention on Human Rights, if that is the sticking point. James Cleverly, as Foreign Secretary, he hasn't been in favour of that. Uh, but this now becomes a fracture line within the Conservative Party as to whether or not that's necessary for this policy, but whether that's a good thing to do. You don't want to be in the same club as the likes of Belarus, uh, is something that uh, is being said.
0: Mm. Uh, and what do you think the international ramifications of this decision might be? Uh, do you think other EU countries who are t- attempting to replicate the scheme Uh, will be affected by this?
5: Well, we know uh, in recent days uh, German Chancellor Olaf Scholz has been reassessing his policies on migration because of the rise of the far right uh, in Germany, particularly the alternative for Deutschland. Uh, The Chancellor had pledged to examine whether asylum applications could be processed abroad. So that's essentially looking at a Rwanda scheme like the UK. He was potentially looking uh, at uh, the country itself, Uh, so we will see whether or not uh, you know they will be keeping close attention today to this policy whether or not uh, it will be defeated particularly on that point of whether Rwanda is safe or not Rwanda itself it has to be said is is very happy to have done this deal you know they're getting hundreds of millions of pounds from the UK uh, in order to do this processing Uh, they've also you know they've taken slight issue with the fact that they've been deemed as being an unsafe country. Uh, and they probably would quite like it if, you know, if the UK managed to get this over the line, if the likes of Germany, if the likes of some other countries thought, well, we'll we'll engage with this as well. But then domestically, it's whether or not uh, it sort of creates this division, creates this new population, uh, which local people then end up not being too happy with.
0: Vincent, thank you very much indeed. That's Vincent McAvini there. This is Monocle Radio. 10.36 in Moscow, 8.36 in Zurich. In Britain, the National Cyber Security Centre, the NCSC, has released its annual review of security issues and warned that the next elections in the UK, which must be held by January 2025, may be compromised by bad actors such as Russia. The NCSC says they are now increasingly realistic deep fake videos and other forms of disinformation which are designed to influence voter preferences. will Joining me now in the studio is the author David Badanus, who's written on this subject. David, thanks for coming in. Can you enlarge on exactly what these threats might be?
6: Uh, the first thing these threats can do is take our current capabilities and multiply them. So already, as we know, in something like the Brexit campaign in, America, in Britain, uh, people would look closely at what different types of uh, British voters like and work out, here's the message that applies really well to them, whether it is accurate or not. Now this skill will be terrifically multiplied by AI, I think when Dominic Cummings was involved with the Brexit campaign, I think he divided Britain into about 300 or 400 different groups. Um, there could be uh, uh, middle-aged men in the suburbs. There could be uh, young uh, women in, in central London, etc., etc. Uh, with AI, you can have a huge number. You can almost make it as granular as the whole country. Press a button, have exactly the right messages, which might be false but will be very uh, misleading to each and every individual.
0: So I'm trying to figure out how this would work. It would then be, for instance, a deep fake video targeted exactly to the people that need to hear that and pushed onto their feed by an algorithm.
6: Uh, yes exactly, and uh, the deep fake might actually not be a deep fake it it could be um it could uh, a lot of things that people look at on YouTube or social media doesn't have a source so you'll just see this thing a, a pleasant person speaking they might be computer generated they might not uh, probably they will be, but it'll look exactly like a an a person and it might even be a newsletter from a labor or Tory uh, central office
0: mm. so then what are the policy uh solutions to this and also the challenges to those
6: It's difficult. Uh, Already, uh, without making this a party political broadcast, many parties already do things that are not quite true. Uh, In America, what are called push polls are very uh, uh, popular. Uh, George W. Bush used them in his election years ago. What it is is somebody uh, or a a computerized voice phones somebody and pretends to be asking a polling question for a polling organization. But the questions are very misleading and designed to incite uh, anger or resentment.
0: How does that work?
6: So, for example, they might find somebody who they think is in a category that might be slightly against immigrants. And they'll ask a question, a very loaded question. We have seven questions for you. What do you think about the 18 cases of, of violence by immigrants in your neighborhood recently? Et cetera, et cetera. It might not be true, but it thinks, wow, it comes from an abstract authority. Perhaps the most dangerous thing from AI is the unexpected. So I talked about things that take our current capacities and multiply them. Uh, uh, So some of the slogans during Brexit were very popular in Britain, and they they reached the parts that others don't. What if some of these AIs come up with good feedback and come up with slogans that nobody had thought of, that are extremely potent?
0: Britain uh, still relies on a paper voting system. Is it as much at risk as countries that use a digital system? And, and, and what do you think that means in real terms for the next election here? Uh, the,
6: the paper system is really important. Uh, there are flaws with paper systems, but they tend to be limited. For example, suppose there's a big lorry with um, uh, 20 million banknotes in the back, uh, uh, five pound, 10-pound uh, uh, notes or whatever, and you and your friends have to count them accurately. It's unlikely you come would come up to the exact uh, same result. You're going to make mistakes that I count this bundle or not, but your errors are going to be bounded. That's what paper balloting is like. There's mistakes, but we know they're within a a teeny, teeny amount. Uh, With uh, uh, computer voting, it might be uh, 100% accurate, but if it goes wrong, it can seriously go wrong.
0: And so the worry is that that actual counting system could be tampered with.
6: Uh, sure, because all it takes is, is one hacker. And most of the uh, companies behind this keep their uh, their software um, <clears throat> uh, dark. Uh, they don't explain how it works.
0: Mm. Uh, Russia obviously has a track record on this. But which other countries have been highlighted as potential meddlers?
6: Ah, so this is the problem. It's, it's one of those things that's extremely deniable. Uh, small countries, uh, consider something like North Korea. Uh, there's no chance they could fight a NATO army uh, directly. It just can't work. But if they have one kid who's exceptionally brilliant at hacking, so long as he's better than the top uh, person or people uh, at uh, the National Security Agency or GCHQ, then they have a chance. So any bad actor can do it. And the bad actors might be... Uh, uh, nations we don't like. Uh, They could be political figures we don't like who think they're going to get too small a vote. They could be large corporate interests. They could be some bored teenage boy or girl um, in a suburb of Manchester.
0: I mean, so it's not necessarily always done for political gain.
6: Correct. And sometimes people will do this for fun, as in bits of trolling. There are ways to uh, control this, but they're really hard. Uh, And the people involved in controlling it have to uh, incorporate the desires of big tech. We've seen how well big tech is malleable when it comes to controlling social media, which means not very malleable.
0: So this obviously needs concerted international action at the policy level. Yes. Uh, And is that happening?
6: Uh, To the best of my knowledge, the response is, again, uh, as uh, poor as the response to uh, social media's lies and exaggerations. It's really hard to do when on the one side are, uh, sorry, there are several uh, difficulties. One is a lot of uh, bad groups uh, wish to do this. And to them, they're not often bad groups. Think of our propaganda, uh, or uh, we don't call it propaganda, our pushing of, of a fair and honest line um, in in uh, what we consider countries that are uh, dictatorships or totalitarian. When we do it, it's right. So many people on our side feel justified in the way that many people on the other sides also feel justified. Uh, firms pushing certain lines. It's a... It's a fine line between legitimate and, and useful uh, corporate uh, information spread versus these malicious lies. When does it shift over?
0: And how can we tell?
6: Uh, at the moment, we are uh, totally dependent on, uh, on our government masters to, uh, to do the right thing and put in blocks before this happens.
0: So it, it, how much education is there around private individuals being told to check and how to check, how you verify that anything you're being told is actually from a from a reliable source?
6: Uh, uh, so excellent schools and sensible parents uh, do push that. And there's little things you can do to practice how unlikely, uh, uh, how uh, if something is uh, linked to what are the handful of utterly reputable sources. Um, it's difficult. I'm not aware of any overall program in the UK that's well constructed and incorporates feedback to see what works or doesn't work. If a middle aged teacher says to a teenage classroom, be careful, you can't trust what's on the net, they're going to say, yeah, yeah, and ignore that.
0: Mm. So this, this report then from the National Cybersecurity Centre, should we be very worried about
6: this? Oh, totally. Uh, for me, this is the sort of thing that can break down democracy, because if people find it doesn't work, they'll stop. Uh, we think that democracy is eternal because when I grew up and many of our listeners grew up, it was kind of a given thing and a kind of a growing thing and associated with prosperous countries. We know historically there was just a little blip of a few generations.
0: David, thank you very much indeed. That was David Badanus and this is The Globalist on Monocle Radio. is a global financial services firm with over 150 years of heritage. Built on the unique dedication of our people, we bring fresh thinking and perspective to our work. We know that it takes a marriage of intelligence and heart to create lasting value for our clients. It's about having the right ideas, of course, but also about having one of the most accomplished systems and an unrivaled network of global experts. That's why at UBS we pride ourselves on thinking smarter to make a real difference. Tune in to The Bulletin with UBS every week for the latest insights and opinions from UBS all around the world. We're going to stay with technology, with the David, and indeed with AI. David Phelan, one of correspondent tech here, although he's he's almost here. David, your chair <laughs> seems to be sinking.
1: Yes, I, I'm now going to sit up very tall. I, <laughs> Looking I Although dignified. I can manage technology, I can't manage the operation of a chair, it seems.
0: Uh, what is humane, the humane AI pin? Yeah, well... <laughs>
1: I think people are looking, in technology, they're looking for what will replace the smartphone, what will come next. And Humane, a company that's set up by uh, several people who used to be at Apple, uh, are thinking they've come up with something interesting. It's a little uh, square pin badge that goes on your lapel and it has a camera, it has a microphone, it has a speaker, it even has a laser projector in it. Not, not to shoot your enemies, you understand, hmm. but to project a small um, amount of data onto your hand. So the idea is that this is maybe something that could replace uh, your iPhone. You, you can hold up something and say, because it responds to your voice, you can, you can say how many calories in this, and it can recognize certain objects, like a a watermelon is is the one they used in in many demos, and it can tell you what the calories or the sugar content is of, of what you're holding up. So it uses AI, that buzz phrase, artificial intelligence, to do all this, and it's pretty intriguing. Now. I'm not personally convinced that it will replace uh, the the phone because we need our screens so much for for what we do. And indeed, even the people who, who've made it say, "Well, uh, it's not that I'm not using my phone now, but I'm using it differently."
0: And, and could it do, for instance, if you're at a party, could it scan the face of the person you're talking to and tell you who they are?
1: Uh, uh, not yet, but uh, that would be good, wouldn't it? Wouldn't it? If be it fantastic? could quietly tell you in your ear, "No, no, yeah. that's not him; it's the other one," you always get these two mixed up but <laughs> um, but no it's 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 not there I think that's some way off although you know AI is moving so fast maybe not as far off as I think.
0: But I mean a good thing to get us off our phones surely.
1: Uh, absolutely and uh, it's sort of what the Apple Watch did in a way that it would send you notifications to your wrist so that you wouldn't get lost in opening your phone and going in and then see more notifications. But it's still of of limited, I think, capability because ultimately if you do see a notification you want, you open up your phone again then.
0: Yeah. Well, speaking of notifications, we understand that texting is in decline. Yes.
1: Yes. I think this is an interesting story, especially because of, of it's not a global story. Um, it, it, it differs according to whether you're in the US or Europe, I think. So many people are moving to what they call over-the-top messaging systems, not, not meaning overexcitable, <laughs> frenetic messages that you leave, but um, things like WhatsApp and Signal, that... The, um, the money that uh, networks earned from uh, people sending texts, business people especially because most personal um, tariffs have unlimited texts, um, has been going down and networks are concerned about this and need to find a, a way to make up that money.
0: Uh, and there's also a kind of disconnect between different operating systems. Uh,
1: yes, absolutely. Uh, so if if you use messages on your iPhone, you have certain extra features. You can have firework effects. You can have read receipts, and uh, so people know when they've been delivered and when you've read them. Uh, you, similar things exist on Android. You can edit things there, but you can't. The two can't um, meet, and that's a problem.
0: Mm. Uh, let's talk about the London-based tech company Nothing uh, because they've just made an announcement.
1: Yes, and it's actually related to this that they now are finding a way that you can get some of the effects of Apple's messaging system on Android, on specifically on the Nothing phone, Nothing phone two, and that can it, it will it it will make some of the features that are available to iPhone users available to nothing phone users as well. And it's quite a a clever thing, and I think in the States especially, this will be quite a big change.
0: Mm, Because, as you were saying, there are different ways that we use... Tech in different countries. Sure. Why?
1: <laughs> yes, I don't know. I think it's. I think there's been a much greater. Well, in America, the uh, the iPhone has around fifty percent of the market, which is why people are happy to just stick to iPhone. Here, it's a very and in Europe, it's generally it's very different, and so that's why people have switched to WhatsApp because WhatsApp is universal, works with iPhone, works with Android, so you get the same experience. You don't have to know what phone your friend
0: has. Yeah. Now, David, I always look forward to you coming in, uh, not only because you're wonderfully intelligent and articulate (laughs) but that you bring your dog, Macy (laughs) uh, and that you usually bring something, a a bit of a show and tell
1: Yes, uh, and indeed I didn't want to let you down Georgina, today I've brought the latest folding (gasps) phone Look at that! uh, Which is from OnePlus, it's called the OnePlus Open and what's interesting about it is that apart from the fact it's a very beautiful object in itself and it works very well, the fold is very good and on the back it has three enormous cameras and they are made in conjunction with Hasselblad so this is one of the first uh, folding phones where uh, the uh, the camera has not been neglected it, it, these are obviously top of the range uh, cameras because uh, of their involvement with Hasselblad and it's a, a keen indication that OnePlus wants us to take the folding phone seriously
0: I mean this really is absolutely beautiful, just talk us through the design a little bit yes, yeah, so one interesting thing
1: about folding phones is when you open it up you don't get a, a, a wide tablet. You get a, still a vertical um, object. But I think the proportions of the OnePlus uh, phone m- still make it work very well. It's not so great if you're watching a widescreen movie. But uh, well, you can turn it sideways. But that more and more folding phones are coming to terms with the fact that the fold itself is where you can lose some screen quality. But OnePlus seem to have uh, done their best to make that that that. Uh, crease in the middle uh, vanish. Uh,
0: yes, yeah, you absolutely don't see it on the screen, and you can also use it or fold it up just absolutely. as if it were a normal phone.
1: Yeah, and it's relatively slim, so that when it's folded, it doesn't feel like a super chunky phone.
0: Yeah, although still thicker than you, than you Definitely. would normally have. Um, this is on loan, presumably.
1: It, yes, I, I well, it's currently on loan to you. I'm hoping you're going to give it back, but I, I can see that might be a problem.
0: Yeah, it might be a problem. Oh, David, I'm so sorry. You have to go now. Oops! In a bit of a rush, forgot to take the phone with you. David Phelan, thanks for joining us. Off you go. This is The Globalist on Monocle Radio. <laughs> New Zealand holds an annual event called Bird of the Year. It's organised by the conservation group Forest and Bird to raise awareness of the plight of the nation's native birds, some of which have been driven to extinction. This year, the contest was named Bird of the Century to mark the group's centennial. However, the US late-night talk show host John Oliver shows that it's not just AI that can influence elections, Sometimes a foreign comedian can also subvert democracy. Well, David Stevens is Monocle's deputy head of production. He's a proud Kiwi and Bird of the Year voter and enthusiast. Uh, welcome to this side of the glass, David. It's lovely to have you. And I'm glad to say that you have more command over the furniture than uh, the previous David. <laughs> yeah, I, sh- I should do
7: It's <laughs> Kind of partly my job. So.
0: <laughs> David, tell us more about Bird of the Year.
7: So uh, they've been running Bird of the Year for... Uh, 18 years now, so quite a while. Um, as, as you mentioned, it's the centenary of forest and bird. Um, but in 2005, they decided they wanted to do this competition to, well, this this vote to raise a bit more awareness for um, the plight of birds. You know, we're very proud of our birds in New Zealand. We have a, a large number of native species due to being this isolated island for so long. Um, and, yeah, as you say, lots of them have been driven close to extinction or to extinction, Um There's even some stories of some coming back from extinction, which is exciting. Um, They were just a bit lost. Uh, But um, so they've been doing this to try and raise awareness, basically. Um, uh, Yeah, 18 years, uh, the, the classic Kiwi has won it in the past um, but this year they were doing as you say the, the bird of the century to mark that centenary
0: uh, and I mean I, I'm just trying to get a sense of where this sits within the New Zealand culture how important is it?
7: Yeah well there's the there's the general election and then there's New Zealand bird of the year right, I think right. yeah, it's, okay. it's, <laughs> it's, it's gotten a lot it's gotten a lot bigger over the years so I think maybe in the last five years it really has um, started to get some international attention and um, started to get you know people campaigning for certain birds putting their putting their Weight behind uh, their favourites, yeah.
0: And in the past, though, there have been problems with fraudulent votes.
7: There's been a lot of, of, of fraudulent voting, um, usually only in the kind of numbers of, of you know a uh, hundred fraudulent votes here, three hundred here. Um, people using one business account, using uh, bots to 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 rig votes, all for their favourite. But as and I say, and once
0: a bat one.
7: Yeah, that's another controversy, which, I I, I mean, I, I'm on the side of a bat is not a bird. Uh, but yeah, two years ago, a bat did, did win bird of the year. So I can't explain that one. I'm sorry.
0: <laughs> so let's look at what John Oliver has done. Tell us the story.
7: So he, he kind of, I mean people have said that he he noticed this flaw in the voting system but i think the voting has always been open to people around the world the idea is not that it's new zealanders picking this bird necessarily but it's it's uh it's trying to raise awareness and you can't do that without including the entire entire globe so th- the voting has always been available to anyone that wants to vote um and he kind of noticed that and noticed that um you know he could he could do a campaign for the the bird he wanted to choose and i think He's chosen a bird that he thought was maybe the, the, the funniest on on the list. It's um, it's an interesting one that, that he put his weight behind. And um, it is. Uh, it's called the Poo Tikki It's uh, it's like a waterfowl. It's got a bright red kind of mullet uh, looking. Um, Plumage. It's uh, it, it, it vomits. Uh, <laughs> it has a strange nesting style. It's uh, it's just got some oddities about it, and I think that's probably the reason why John Oliver, a comedian, decided that was his his candidate.
0: So, how did he run his campaign? I mean, it was absolutely huge.
7: Yeah, massive. So he he used obviously his his um, TV viewing audience uh, numbers to to kind of push that, but he also put up a bunch of billboards, uh, not just in uh, New Zealand. He put one up in Wellington, um, but uh, Mumbai, Tokyo, (laughs) London, uh, Paris. He went all over the world because, as I say, he noticed that you can vote from anywhere and uh, his influence has actually paid off. Um, They announced last night, early in the morning on Wednesday in New Zealand, um, that the tiki had won. Uh, by 83 uh-huh. percent of the vote so he got his landslide victory
0: and how have new zealanders reacted to this well
7: uh, i mean speaking from for, for one new zealander myself um I, I mean i think i think i'm i'm okay with it I, I like the idea this is this is what the the forest and bird society want right they want a visibility they want people to know about these birds they want uh you know they want it in the public eye. I think a lot of people were worried about what he he mentioned, actually. John Oliver mentioned in his kind of pitch is that, you know, why don't we do what Americans do and, and rig an international <laughs> election? Um, <laughs> people are worried that it wasn't New Zealanders choosing it, but I think that's missing the point slightly. We, this is the biggest profile they've ever had for the New Zealand Bird of the Year. They had 350,000 votes compared to a previous record of 50,000. So that's extraordinary. it's extraordinary. Yeah. Uh
0: David just before we go John Oliver has made a lot of the fact that uh the particular has a particularly uh, interesting uh mating dance uh and also that it has quite a distinct cry. So I'm going to ask you to demonstrate both of those.
7: <laughs> well, the dance you might have to you might have to wait for the uh globalist after dark. But um uh, I can give you the I can give you the cry. It's, it's <clears> Huh.
0: <throat> How's that? I think that's a perfect way to go out, David Stevens. Thank you very much indeed, and that's all for today's programme. Thank heavens, some might say. Uh, thanks to our producers, Carlotta Ravello Christy O'Grady and Isabella Jewell, our researcher Harrison Warlock, and our studio manager, Tamsin Howard. The briefing is on the way at a midday in London, and The Globalist will return at the same time tomorrow. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thanks for listening. <laughs>